0: Uh, tonight Tonight, I fear I'm going to do my very best to make it not, but tonight may be a little a little academic. Um, and we may never do that we may never cover what we're going to cover again tonight. Uh, but I think it's worth trying at least once. Let me tell you why, because as we talk about ethics, how we know right or wrong, how we do what's right or wrong uh, in given situations, We've looked at the last several weeks. We know right is right because God is right. God is the standard of good. We know that uh, the ultimate ethic for the Christian is to love the Lord God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and, and out of that, to love our neighbor as ourselves. that this is ultimately the work of God transforming us where, um, in, in one very real sense, we don't ever water down holiness and the righteousness of God. We do what God says, but we want to be transformed to where we do what God says, not because we're committed dutiful people, but because we love Him. There's a transformation that takes place in the core of our being, which is the ultimate transformation, right? Because as sinners, we're born uh, by nature uh, opposed in rebellion against God because we are born by nature what is wrong, sin. And he is by nature what is right, good, holy, righteous. And uh, we, we, looked at, we looked at various aspects of what that means. And we hold to the fact that there's, 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 there's absolute right or wrong because God is absolute. There's objective right or wrong because God is objectively who he is. He's not dependent upon us and, and our thoughts and this and that. Um, but here's why this is important. Because there is a whole world of crafty, and deceitful, worldly philosophy that can really mess up how you as, and I as believers respond ethically. Give you an example. Um, several years back, I did this with college students, and I I came up, and unfortunately, the, um, right before God called us here, my laptop at Central just completely like set it down, went to the bathroom, came back, the whole screen had blown up. Nothing happened. Just computer went on a fritz. So I lost basically everything that wasn't a sermon when I was filling in. So I, unfortunately, my notes where I did this, I wish I could find them and I'd put us through the same test, but I can't find them and I cannot remember what all I did. But, but it started like this. I gave an ethical dilemma. I said, okay, I said, you, you're sitting in the waiting room at the hospital and your dad is in the hospital room. He is dying of cancer. And humanly speaking, there is no possibility for everything. You, there's no possibility of his survival. He's dying from cancer. The nurse comes out, says, hey, he wants to see you. You go back to the room and your dad says, hey, I'm done. I don't want to deal with it anymore. I want you to tell them to, uh, to euthanize me. How many of you think it's right? Well, it, it was summer. So the only college kids at church in summer are the kids who've grown up in church. So all of them are like, oh, yeah, that's wrong. That's horrible. Like, that's not right. And so I proceeded to do the same example four more times, every time adding one more piece of information, to where we got to a point where I said, "Okay, you're sitting in the waiting room. You're 17 years old. You've got one more year left to finish high school. You've got a 10-year-old and a 5-year-old little brother and sister. Your mom's passed away, so when your dad dies, you're the sole, you're the sole provider for your two siblings." Your dad's got an incurable form of cancer. He's going to die. Humanly speaking, there's no shot. Nothing else is gonna work. He's gonna die. He has a life insurance policy that will pay out upon his death $4 million if he dies before 6 p.m. He calls you back and says, look, I know I'm gonna go. Tell them to euthanize me. That way y'all get the money. 50% of the room was split. Now here's my point to them. I added details, the issue never changed. The issue is whether or not at any point am I allowed to choose to take my life, not to sacrifice my life, that's a different choice, but am I allowed to choose to take my life, yes or no? That issue never altered in, and again, I'm giving you the summarizer because with them I did about four or five different, and it just was interesting to watch the room shift because at the end of the day, we're, we might go, yeah, we get it. What's right is right because God is right. And, and we're to love the God with all our hearts and mind, and strength. But what does that look like when we live in a world where there are really challenging ethical situations we're faced with? So what we're going to do tonight, um, I might mention something that's not on your cheat sheet. If it's not on your cheat sheet, you can try to take a note or you can just know, I didn't think it was important enough to put on your cheat sheet. I'm just mentioning it. And don't worry about it. Uh, but we're going to do the best we got here with the, uh, with the 35 minutes we got. So there have been all different attempts, humanly speaking, to, to explain how you know right from wrong going all the way back to ancient times. You've got what would be called processism, Which is the idea that the world is in constant flux, constant change, and so what is right or wrong is going to change based on the situation. You've got ideas like hedonism, which says uh, pleasure is the essence of good, pain is the essence of evil. So whatever is right is that which brings pleasure, and whichever is evil is that which brings pain. It's wrong. But that's one of the things that drives our society today, an ancient idea. You've got skepticism. Skepticism would say, well, in every moral issue, uh, you're going to ultimately take one of two sides, and either side can argue the other into a stalemate, so there's no way to know what's right or wrong. Skepticism. In the medieval world, you had intentionalism, meaning that something is right if it's done with good intentions, and something's wrong if it's done with bad intentions, so as long as I have the right intentions, I can kill you, and morally it's right. But if I have the wrong intentions in saving your life, morally it's wrong for me to save your life. Uh, you have ideas in the modern world like utilitarianism, meaning something is is good. How do we know what's good? Is if it produces the greatest good for the greatest number of people. The end justifies the means. Uh, we've got the idea of evolutionism, whatever, which is similar to processism, but a modern spin. Whatever, uh, whatever aids the evolutionary process is right, and if anything hinders that that movement forward in evolutionary process, it is wrong. That's played out biologically. That was the ethic of Nazi Germany. It's not only played out biologically, but it's. Uh, It's played out in ideas, uh, think, sexual ethics. Humankind is evolving. That's why there's all these different ways to express our sexuality. To repress that is evil because you're getting in the way of the evolutionary process. In the contemporary world, you have things what we call emotivism. Emotivism is defined by this. How do you know that's right or wrong? Because I feel it. I feel that it's right. Listen to my heart. You've got situationalism. Everything is relative based on the situation one is in. You've got all sorts of ideas that humans have come up with about right or wrong. Now, we're talking specifically about having a, a biblical worldview, a worldview that is grounded based on the revelation of God himself recorded inerrantly in the scriptures. And in, and in, and in um, uh, competition with that are uh, other worldviews. Um, it's been a while since I've mentioned them on Wednesday nights, but we've we've looked briefly at them before. But in our Western society, you have roughly, uh, I think some would say you have roughly seven distinct worldviews that are primary in America. You've got the Judeo-Christian worldview. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll use our term, the biblical worldview. Uh, you've got a, a secular humanist worldview. You've got a Marxist worldview. You've got a New Age or um, yeah, New Age worldview. Uh, you've got a postmodern worldview. You've got the Islamic worldview. Uh, in addition, some would take a step further and say you have what's called moral therapeutic deism, which is going to be an idea somewhat sandwiched in between a biblical worldview and aspects of these naturalistic worldviews like humanism and Marxism, because it believes there's a God, it believes there's moral truth, but, but God's not personally involved and engaged in our lives and, and tangible reality and and everything is ultimately about me and me feeling good, therapeutic, moral therapeutic deism. Reality is, and before I I go through some of the specifics here, reality is every study of our country shows the same thing, which is there is no one of those worldviews that forms the majority of our country. In fact, the majority of our country are a mixture of the different worldviews. And that's even true inside of the church. So, in saying that, here's here's the way other view, worldviews present their ethics today. In the secular humanist worldview, that worldview which uh, remember our theology is the basis of our worldview. Who God is, on top of that, is our philosophy. How we understand truth and reality. For the all the for for the humanist and the Marxist, those are flipped. Their philosophy determines their theology. Their philosophy that nothing else can exist other than the natural world. What you see, what you feel. Uh, this is what this this is going to encompass things like Darwinian evolution. This is going to be a, natu- a commitment to natural. There, there's no way a miracle could take place. It's just we don't we just don't have a, a good enough theory to cover whatever we've seen happen. That could be miraculous. These flip. And so, out of their philosophy, their commitment to naturalism, comes these beliefs. Secular humanism would hold to three key traits. One is moral relativism that morality, that which is right or wrong, is defined by an individual or a culture. It's relative, it's not absolute. What's right is right. What's right is not right for all people at all time and all places. Right's going to be determined based on each individual person or, or a local group. Now, how do you determine what's right? It's relative to what? They would hold to what we call situation ethics, that the rightness or wrongness of any action is determined by the unique situation that that's taking place. We're going to come back to that here in a minute, uh, but but that's... It's situation ethics in that they're going to be driven by the belief of scientism, which is all, all knowledge is ultimately only attainable through the scientific method, which is why in that worldview, you see this idea that only the intellectual scientific elite know what's actually right. And all of you dumb non-scientific elite, you just need to get in line. We're the evolutionary superior beings. We know what's right. Now, that's not how it's going to say, but you can look back. We're, we're, we're not going to do this tonight, but I could easily look back over the last five years and give you all sorts of examples if they're not already coming to your mind. This, this heavily, this, this kind of re- moral relativity that's grounded in situation ethics, that's driven by a, a, a scientism, a belief that science, is that, that is all over the political and academic elite of our culture today, especially the political elite that is... There, These are the kind of things that bring out ideas like Darwinian evolution, uh, which is not just a theory of origin, it is an ethical theory. Uh, this is at the core of the ire against um, uh, any, any really, in the, the church would be the only one really pushing back in, in some ways at this point, but any pushback on the freedom of sexual expression in any and every way, that draws the ire of those in this category, Uh John Dewey said, many secularists see supernatural explanations not only as wrong, but inherently dangerous. He's the most influential man of the public school system of the United States of America in the 20th century, and he made that comment well over 50, 60 years ago because he hadn't been alive in forever. We're just now seeing it on a societal scale. In addition to humanism, you have ideas of Marxism. Now, at the core, and, this, and we're not going to go deep down this rabbit hole, but I, I, it's worth noting because it is part of what you were seeing, especially in the last several years uh, in our society, Marxism holds to what we would call proletariat morality. Here's what that is. Whatever is good is that which advances communism, socialism, the proletariat, the working class. Whatever is wrong... Is that which prohibits it? Capitalism, freedom, etc. Morally evil. Capitalism is evil because it creates class distinctions. Society's always evolving. The next evolution is communism. So something is something is moral if it's if it brings about communism. Something is wrong if it pushes away. This is why the old morality. If you really dig into Marxist thought, the old morality, which would specifically be biblical morality is so awful because it is holding back and preventing this classless society. And at the core of Marxist ethics is the idea, not only that this is how you know good and this is how you know wrong, but revolution, violent revolution, is always morally good if it brings this about. It doesn't matter how many people you have to kill. It doesn't matter how awful, how much blood runs in the street. It is morally good and desirous if it brings this about. Again, give you plenty of examples from the last five years in our country. You probably already got them coming to your mind. How can people say that this is okay and good because they're driven by an idea that says this is what the goal is and anything therefore is good (laughs) <laughs> this, listen, this is from a Marxist. Evolution is painful. It involves suffering and death. There will be blood. Talking about the enacting of Marxist ethics as uh, interesting statement back. Um, how many of you are familiar with the Hunger Game books or movies? Kids or grandkids are probably into them. Um, I don't think this was actually the intent of the author of the books. Uh what I've dug into there, she had a different intent she was trying to expose. But those books, obviously, you have an oppressive, authoritarian uh, government that's, that's taken everybody out. And, and in the books, ultimately, a revolution breaks out through all this. I don't need to give you a story, but it's interesting to me, when they made them into movies, uh, Donald Sutherland uh, plays the, the president of the bad guys, put it that way, that way, sure. president of the bad guys. One of his comments, this was back almost a decade ago, was how he hoped the younger generation would pick up from these movies that revolution may be necessary to fix society. Again, I don't think that was the author's intention in the books. She was trying to address a different issue, but that is the actor's intention and in, one of the actors' intention in acting that comes straight out of these ideas. By the way, don't forget what I told you last week, over one-third of practicing Christians hold to at least one Marxist worldview. We got postmodernism. Postmodernism, and just to remind you what postmodernism was a philosophical movement from the Renaissance through World War II that was built on the idea, it came to really be built on the idea that man is the center of reality from my own mind, from my own experience is how I understand everything. I don't reason from God to man. I reason from man to God, if you will. That's the classic analogy. And in that, the scientific method holds true. We're gonna improve society. We're gonna bring these technological advances. We're gonna do all this stuff. And society is gonna come to a place of utopia. And that all blew up when World War I went down. And all of those technological advances didn't bring utopia. They brought the bloodiest war the world has ever seen. And then 20 years, 30 years later, brought the, the even more bloodiest war that the world had ever seen. And so out of that, there was a reaction, especially in Europe, where they were ground zero battleground for all this, where they went, wait a minute, all this certainty of, of what science can do and all this objectivity, it's, it's, all, uh, it's, it's all a bunch of hogwash it's all a bunch of just, just lies. In fact, there is no certainty. Truth is relative. What is right or wrong is relative. Instead, it's just all about what individual little clusters, cultures, communities come up with. This is where postmodernism got its roots, which is why in postmodernism, uh, how, how, what is right or wrong? Well, truth and morals are relative, but they're relative to your local community. So whatever your little cluster of community believes is right or wrong, well, that's what's right or wrong. (laughs) Unless you're a Christian local community, and then that's got to go. By the way, more than half of practicing Christians embrace postmodern aspects to their worldview. uh, Because this is so prevalent. Uh, new age, the center of the new age or, or, or uh, 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 worldview is karma. Now, remember, new age worldview really flows out of Eastern religions. And honestly, in our uh, most of us probably, I have ministered to a lot of Hindus, but the Hindus I've ministered to have all been people from India and Nepal. I don't meet a lot of Anglo-Americans or people who were born and raised in America of any ethnicity who go, oh, yeah, I converted to Hinduism. So a lot of us may not run into as much the Eastern religion aspect of this, but those ideas, oh man, and and at the core of the idea of right and wrong in, in the New Age movement is karma. It's karma. You say, well, give me the definition of karma. Well, it's the belief that good is returned to those who do good. Evil is returned to those who do evil. Whether it's in this life or the next because you got reincarnation in there. So karma will pay each back. So, but here's the challenge of karma. In New Age, right or wrong, so the idea is karma, but it's also relative. There is no absolute right or wrong. So how can, if, if I do right, how can I be repaid right when there is no objective right? If I do wrong, how can I be repaid wrong if there is no objective wrong? They don't have an answer for that, but this belief is so prevalent. And I promise you, if you've got kids anywhere from 35 and younger, or your grandkids are 35 and, and younger, they are following celebrities who are uh, often talking about karma. Oh, karma. I mean, it's even a joke. It's a buzzword among younger people. Oh, karma. 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 By the way, 61% of Christians hold at least one aspect of a new, spirit, new spirituality, new age worldview. So you've got these worldview assaults coming that are seeking to shape and alter our ethics that are either pulling us to an ethic of revolution where every uh, where I get to decide I am an oppressed class and it's down with the oppressors. you've got these ethics that come around and center around uh, uh, really a a, rel- a moral relativity. You can't know absolute right or wrong or absolute right or wrong or right or wrong is, is based on evolution, science, my desires or you've got these, Uh, We can't know with absolute certainty. It's based on my community, so that's which really ought to result in well, that's good for you and that's good. But can't it results in anarchy? And then and then you've got these new age deals which come there. And in the midst of all of this, we we are, are seeking to hold truth to an ethic that says no, there is objective, absolute right or wrong. It's God Himself. He is clearly revealed. And what he clearly reveals, reveals all the nonsense I just told you because he reveals all the nonsense of all of us as sinners. And so we look at all of the, and and you notice some of the strings in there. In, In fairness to Marxism, Marxism at least has a little bit of absolute to it, right? It's absolutely right if it's down with the rulers. The others have no absolute. Now both are wrong. And into this, we as believers are seeking to walk and live out loving God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving neighbor as ourself, understanding there is absolute right and absolute wrong. But here is the world we find ourselves. We find ourselves in a world where we face real moral conflicts. How do we respond and deal with moral? And you say, Well, Pastor, what do you mean by a moral conflict? Right? So just let's just right over here. What's right or wrong is based on God, right? God never changes, right? God doesn't change based on the situation, correct? So lying is wrong because God is truth and God never lies, right? And because God never changes, lying is always wrong, right? Okay, God is life, correct? God gives, he's the author of life, the giver of life, the creator of life, right? God never changes, so he's always life, right? It's not like on Saturdays he becomes the God of death. So on the basis of God is life and God making us in his image, cold-blooded premeditated murder is always wrong, right? Hey, we're with the SS. We're, uh, we're taking Jews to the concentration camps so we're gonna snuff them out. Do you have any in your house? Can't lie, that's a sin. But you're also not supposed to aid in murder. That's a sin too. What do you do? Because that is the reality of the world that we live in. Now, by the way, there's a good answer to that. And that's what we're going to unpack with the last, we actually got 25 minutes till that clock reads 5-5. And it's in scripture. Look with me. Exodus chapter one. Exodus chapter one. And specifically, remember the example we just gave as far as lying's wrong, murder's wrong. Exodus chapter one. Verse 15, then the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shiphrah The other was named Pua. And he said, when, when, when you are helping the Hebrew women give birth and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, then you shall put him to death. But if it's a daughter, then she shall live. Notice that's there. You're not even aiding. Hey, hand off to my soldiers. you, You put the baby to death. But the midwives, now catch the statement, contrast. So here's what the king says. But contrast, the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt had commanded them, but let the boys live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said, why have you done this thing and let the boys live? And the Hebrew, the midwives said, the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women. They are vigorous and they give birth before we can get there. Okay. So catch, pause for a second with me. Murder the boys. They go, "Mm, we're going to not be subject to the governing authorities here. We're going to defy the king's law. And then they're called in on it. And they don't go, well, king, we just won't do it. They go, dude, they're not like the sissy Egyptian women. Those babies are out. They they lied. Now, remember what's already said about these women. Why did they not murder these children? Because they feared God. So, God was good to the midwives, and the people multiplied and became very mighty. Not only did their actions flow out of a fear, a, an awe filled love and respect for God, it says God personally blessed them for their preservation of the lives. Hmm. Now, this is one of many. Situations of an ethical dilemma, if we're honest in Scripture. Thou shalt not murder. Abraham, sacrifice your son. Be subject to the governing authorities. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego three times in six chapters go, sorry, won't do it. Actually, they don't even say, sorry, won't do it. One time they ask for permission. The other time they just stand there. And the other time they keep praying and, and they, they go through there. Um, murder's wrong. If you, if you, we don't have time to do all this, but if you do a thorough study of scripture, it is actually uh, incumbent upon us as followers of God to always act to save the life of the innocent. No one has been truly innocent like Jesus Christ who did not act to save himself from death. So here's my point. We live, God doesn't change. Our understanding of right or wrong doesn't change. We do live in a world broken by sin, where because of the sinful brokenness of this world, we're going to face, at times, challenging situations. Now, sometimes we think we're facing a challenging situation, and it's not. We just don't really want to deal with the price of doing what's right. All right. Most of us have never faced the knock on the door, are you hiding Jews in your basement?" So, six theories. I think all six of these are on your your paper. I'm not going to spend equal amounts of time on them, but I want you to be aware because these are essentially, in the study of ethics, the six theories about how how do you deal with this conflict based on the nature of right or wrong. Now, those six theories can be divided into two categories. The first three are categories of relativity, they're not absolute right or wrong, they're various forms of relativity. The bottom three are forms of of what we call absolutism. They're absolute. There's absolute right or wrong. So let me walk through the categories real quick. Antinomianism is the idea that there are no laws. There's no absolute right or wrong. Good, bad, right, or wrong, they don't exist. So for existence, lying, is lying right or wrong? The antinomian answer would be neither. There is no right or wrong. There are no God-given moral laws. There are no objective moral laws. There are no timeless moral laws. There's no laws against laws. Now, here's the problem with it. Um, You can't be absolutely sure there's no absolutes without making an absolute. So you have self-defeated your whole ethical theory in one blow. It's too subjective. It means all of us are deciding what's right or wrong. It's too individualistic, the way one guy put it. Uh, It's a game without rules, and I I am my own umpire, It's ineffective. There's no way to actually deal with any conflict. It's irrational because it breaks the law of non-contradiction, meaning that you can't say everything is right, even the opposites of what's right. All things can't be right. It can't be both simultaneously right to murder and not murder. So antinomianism, there's a lot of... um, ideas that probably leak out from that. But obviously, as you can tell, it doesn't take a whole lot of homework to go, this seems like nonsense. There's what's called situationism. And if there's any of these that I'm tempted to give too much time to, it's probably this, because if you were to just read some of the statements in my notes, you would, I I think many of us as believers would go, well, yeah, that sounds really right. Right but it's entirely relativistic and wrong. But it's because it's really tricky in how it's written. So uh, situationism, if antinomianism says there's no absolute right or wrong, situation says there is one absolute moral law, one, love. Love is the absolute moral law. So is lying wrong? The answer would be, well, lying is sometimes right if it is done in love. So they say love is the only absolute. It tries to walk in between a legalism where there's all these absolutes that 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 are there, or no absolutes. Uh, the only ethical imperative any person has is to act responsibility, responsibly in love. And specifically, one of the one of the the, the main philosophers. Um, in, in, in going back through my notes and old, old stuff I've studied, one of the reasons this is so dangerous is one of the primary influencers of it is, is a guy who claims to be a believer. So when he says love, he's trying to tie it to God's love and Christian love. And, and, and that's why it sounds so like, well, yeah, okay, you said, the, you said the greatest commandments, so love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. So absolutely, why would, why would love not be the one absolute? Well, let me give you an example. One, uh, there's four principles of situationism. So inside of the law of love, four things. Pragmatism. So whatever works, whatever satisfies love's sake, that's what's right. We don't want abstract answers. We don't want a bunch of talk. It's just if, if this, whatever it takes to produce love's outcome is right. Well, you can already tell there that's, that's called the end justifying the mean, and you can twist that. Relativism. Well, if there's one absolute, everything else is relative to it. So love always, but what love might mean is going to change based on the situation. Well, that can be dangerous, dangerous depending on your definition. Positivism, meaning that how do we determine what is loving? Not rationally, but emotively. What we feel would determine love. Personalism. Uh, actually, you don't, to, you don't need to understand that to get, get the general gist. So the it, it sounds like, oh, hey, there could be some things here, but here's the danger. And I, it would say things like this, that there's such a thing as altruistic adultery. And here's the example they would give. Ger- uh, a German mother of two is captured by the Russians, pulled into a prison camp, where in that prison camp, if, if any of the women get pregnant, they release them. They don't want to deal with that. So she seduces a Russian prison guard to impregnate her so she can get back and take care of her kids, and she's going to raise that baby as her own. See how loving that is, so therefore it's right. they have what's called patriotic prostitution. You're a spy for America. You've got to seduce this official from another government to get... To get the enemy's movement reports, that will save all sorts of lives on the battlefield and at home, because it's loving. It's therefore okay to act, and they go on down the line with all sorts of situations like this: uh, sacrificial suicide. I gave that example earlier. Acceptable abortion. There was a Romanian doctor who, in, in that that area, any Jews that were pregnant uh, were automatically incinerated by the Nazis. So rather than he had over the course of the time, he aborted 3,000 Jewish babies to save 3,000 Jewish mothers because he reasoned 3,000 babies being murdered is less than 6,000 people being murdered. They would say that that is morally acceptable. Merciful murder same kind of thing. It brings into these ideas. The problem is it doesn't hold to the New Testament gospel. It doesn't have a place for what we're going to see Sunday, which sometimes our God who can save doesn't save. And we suffer and we suffer for his glory, just like our savior chose to. It says that it ultimately warps the idea of love. Instead of loving God, the idea is whatever is loving or I deem loving for my neighbor, that's how I love God. No, you don't love God through loving your neighbor. You love your neighbor by loving God. It inverts the process, inverts the commandments. One norm is too general uh, to adapt into every place. Um, ultimately, this is a form of utilitarianism, the end, and in this case, what you deem love justifies whatever means require it, and that's not. What we believe it's a form of the next, which is generalism. Generalism says there's no universal laws, maybe some local laws, but not anything absolute. So, take lying is lying right or wrong? Well, lying is generally wrong. Okay, it's a it's again, it's a relativistic the end just the, the idea that there is the end justifies the means, it's utilitarian. Time doesn't go to give more on there. Those are all wrong. When you come to absolutism, here's gonna be where there are many godly people that fall in all three spots. There's what's called unqualified absolutism, which says there are many absolute right or wrongs. Now, what I mean by many absolute right or wrongs is, it's 10 commandments. The 10 commandments would be 10 absolutes. Let's use that as an example. Under the situationism, they'd go, no, there's not 10, there's one love. And their version of love is messed up. This would say that there's many absolute right or wrongs. Ten commandments, right? There's ten different right or wrongs. They're absolute. The unqualified uh, absolutionist, I guess, would be the way to say it, says that there's many absolutes and they should never be broken. The only reason you ever find yourself in a situation where, they, where two seem to be in conflict, again, take the example, do not murder, do not lie. Oh no, I'm in a situation where I'm gonna, it seems like I'm gonna have to do one or the other. They would say the only reason you ever find yourself in that conflict is because you're either sinning or you're experiencing someone else's sin. And that ultimately God is gonna do something miraculous providential so you don't have to break, break the law. Um. Now that sounds really good. God doesn't change. There's many absolutes. All of those things we see are true in scripture. Uh, the reality is many of the moral conflicts we feel probably are more apparent than real because sometimes it's our own mess that gets us into sticky situations and we just don't want to deal with the fallout from it. But it doesn't change the fact uh, that God does not always save you. God didn't save the Hebrew midwives from their dilemma of obeying the Pharaoh or delivering the babies. They delivered the babies. They came up with a cover story and it said, God blessed them. Uh, Rahab. Rahab hid Jewish spies. The authorities came to her door, said, do you have these spies? And she lied and said they went somewhere else they didn't go. And God saved her for protecting his spies in a city that he had destined to punishment. Uh, you've got what um, we're going to look at Sunday. Hey, bound down to the statue, it's just, just a sign of our patriotism for Nebuchadnezzar. That's no big deal. And they go, nope, can't do it. I'm standing here. Now, does God deliver them from the fiery furnace? Yes, yes. God did not deliver them from the moral dilemma, though. So on one hand we go, this sounds great. There's tons of absolutes and, 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 they, and, and you should never break any of the absolutes. That sounds really good, but understand it doesn't necessarily fully co- coincide with scripture because we see people in scripture, God blesses when it seems they break an absolute. So there's another uh, theory, conflicting absolutism, which would say there are many moral absolutes and sometimes they conflict. So is lying right or wrong? Lying is always wrong, but lying's forgivable. So they would say that there's there's uh, worse laws to break and lesser laws to break. So if you got to pick between murdering someone or lying, go ahead and lie, but you're still on the hook for lying, and you need to deal with that with God. That's essentially what the the position. Uh, holds to. It's good because it recognizes, unlike uh, the first absolute position, that there are sometimes real conflicts that come into place. The reason we face conflicts is not always because of our fault, but it is because we're living in a sinful, broken world. It's not that God conflicts with himself. It's not that his laws conflict with themselves. It's that our experience of living in a real broken world puts us in hard situations. Now, the problem with that is, and it comes back to God commands us to save innocent lives, but Jesus chose not to save his own life, which means he would have defied a command from God if in fact that's there. It also says, well, what about the the situations Jesus faced? He had an adulterous woman who, by the law, should have been stoned, and he said, anybody without sin, throw the first stone, and no one stoned her. And he looked at her and said, I don't condemn you. So it leads us then to this this last option, which we call graded absolutism, which says there are many moral absolutes. They do not conflict But we live in a world where we will face conflicting situations and in any conflicting situation, we have a responsibility to recognize what is, and this would be the language they would use, or that that, that would be used to describe this, what is the higher law versus what is the lower law. And we always have a moral obligation to follow the higher law, the higher principle, if you will. So is lying right or wrong? general, or lying is wrong, but there are occasional situations where it, it may be okay. Many absolutes, they do, that you see this, uh, i got to watch the clock here. Even the form of the question to Jesus, Jesus, which is the greatest commandment? You notice Jesus didn't say, well, there's two equal. He said, no, there's one. Love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then there's a second that flows from it. But it also means if I have to choose between loving my neighbor as myself or loving my God with the soul of my being, I have to do whatever action would lead me to love God with the completion of my being, even if it means from a certain vantage point, I have to do something that's hard to a neighbor or or Whatever down the line. You're going to go, Pastor, give me an example of that. I, I, I don't have an example of that. That was just off the cuff. I have to give me a second. Um, sorry, I got to figure out which of these passages we're going to turn to real quick. I got a lot. Let me turn. Give me a second. Matthew twenty three twenty three looks what Jesus says. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These things you should have done without neglecting the others. What does Jesus seem to say there? You're right. My law does say you should tithe and you tithe with good stuff, but you've neglected the things that are even more important. You see commands like that in the Old Testament. What have I desired not... Uh, I hope I don't have it written down here, and I'm going to misquote it. Um, I'll find it. The passage we you hear things like, I, I, God has not desired... Uh, say what? Yeah, God, thank you, there it is. God has desired not sacrifice, but mercy. You've confused the matter. You think you can show up here, Isaiah 58, and you can do your sacrifices, and you can check the boxes of the law, but you can come over here and show absolutely no mercy, no transformation, no concern that flows out of love for me and to love for other people. You've missed it. So to come back to the conflicting situation, do you lie or do you aid in murder? Now understand, most of us, this is not that complicated for. Before I go there, most of us, this isn't. I want you to think about it. How many of you, when you leave your house, leave a light on? How many of you leave a light on in part to make some robber think you're home? You are deliberately misleading. Why? For your protection. How many of you? How many of you? How many? got moms in the room. If you see someone pursuing your child to try to kidnap them, how many of you would intentionally mislead that person away from your child? Every one of you without thinking about it. Why? Because instinctively we know to save a life is of a weighter, weightier consequence than to look at someone and go, oh, you're wanting to kidnap my child? Well, I've got to tell the truth at all times. Here's my child, they're right here. Now, Having said that, so all i say, I know believers and groups of believers that fall in all three of those categories that I have tremendous respect for. Um, there are weighty points to all of those aspects because the honest truth is, most of us really do not face that m- many more truly morally conflicting situations. Most of us face situations where if we do the right thing, there just is gonna be some major discomfort relationally that might come out of it or fill in the blank, what's there? Most of our moral confrontation that we're that, that's seeing coming up is gonna be like what we see Sunday, which really isn't a moral dilemma. Radshach, Meshach, and Abednego, we're going to blow the horns. When the horns blow, you're going to bow down and worship. Sorry, we can't worship your idol. We're, not, we're allowed to have no other gods than the one true God. We're allowed to bow before no other idols. There's no more a dilemma there. The dilemma is by standing up, we see the furnace we're about to get tossed into and our lives are done unless the Lord chooses to act. And he may not, and we're okay with that because he's worth it. So the reality is most of us don't face the intent. The reality is there are wonderful Christian testimonies go back to the knock on the door that go both ways. There are times, God bless the Hebrew midwives who intentionally misled Pharaoh. There are also times when they knock, and I believe, correct me, I believe this is Corey Timboom. Do you have any Jews in the house? Yes. <laughs> what kind of nut would tell us that? We're not even going to look. You're going to have to follow the Holy Spirit's leadership, uh, Brother Andrew. If you're familiar with Brother Andrew, the man who snuck all the Bible, God smuggler, snuck all those Bibles behind the Iron Curtain. He tells a story one time. He's at the deal. the, the guy comes out and in an unusual way, he says, "Hey, I want you to pop the trunk." And he said, "Well, I pop the trunk. There's just nothing but, you know, but gold lettered holy Bibles right there. I mean, it's obvious as day." He pops the trunk. The guy looks in, and it's like he just doesn't even see it. It's not there. There are times God does move supernaturally to eliminate a situation and bring deliverance to his people. Um, so I, I just give you that to simply say we've had to move through rather quickly. And I, what, what we want to understand is when it comes to our understanding of right or wrong, right or wrong is absolute and objective because God is absolute and objective. We don't do situation ethics as Christians where, well, it's right over here, but it's not right over here, and the only difference is the situation. no but we do acknowledge that we do live in a world where we will sometimes be put in a place where there is such a thing as a real moral dilemma for us. And in that place, essentially, you're gonna have, as one of my professors put it, one of two options. One of three, God's either gonna do something to deliver you, and the murder or lie option, you're gonna lie and you sinned, so ask for forgiveness and God's gonna forgive you, or it's not sin and you're going to do it and move on. And then he said, you know, he he said, one of my best friends, uh, he thinks it's sin, but he'd do it and wouldn't think twice about praying for forgiveness. I don't think it's sin, but I would be there praying for forgiveness nonstop for 24 hours after I did it. Here's the reality. There are absolute right or wrong. Scripture's clear on what they are. We're not left ambiguous on what is right or wrong. God's revealed it because he's revealed himself. Not only that, but he who has revealed himself lives within us to convict us and lead us in what we should do. It's always, by the way, always correct to follow the true leading of the Holy Spirit in every situation, which will never contradict his word. What we also want to acknowledge is we do live in a world where there will be some challenging situations and there's, a, there's some ways to think about it. You asked me, Pastor, where do I land? I think you can see pretty clearly in Scripture there is the idea of, of higher higher and lower things, but I would also be one that if I was in that situation, I'd listen to what the Holy Spirit said. If I felt like lying was the right thing to do to save somebody's life, I'd do it, and then I'd probably be spending the next seven days praying and asking the Lord to forgive me, because that's just the way I'm wired. But we're going to have to be sensitive to the Lord in what is there and how that works. All right, I told you I'd, I'd stop it. We're stopping uh, I'm sure there's a bajillion questions you can feel free to ask me tonight. Email me, text me. Uh, next week, we're going to truck on. We're not going to spend more time on this part of ethics broadly. We're going to truck into the incredibly uncontroversial topic of biology and what is the biblical worldview there. Uh, it'll, it'll be good to unpack. We'll see how much time we spend there. So, church family, thank you for being here. I uh, hope you're excited for Sunday. We're going to take a journey out to the plains of Dura, and we're going to see a hot furnace. And find out what happens What happens when you choose to stand when everybody else bows. So um, let me pray and uh, be safe tonight. It's my understanding we've got some nasty storms coming back through with tornado and hell chances again. So praying we all uh, stay safe. So Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that though we live in a world that can feel like we might face dilemmas at times. You have gone before us and you go with us. Your command to Joshua Joshua, was not to um, sit down and and figure out every possible dilemma he could face. Your command to Joshua was, I'm gonna go before you and I'm gonna go with you, so don't you dare be afraid. Instead, you meditate on the law of my my word day and night. And if you do that and you keep your path, you you, you, you choose to submit your path to my word and, and follow me on the path I am leading you on, you said it would be well for him. And Lord, you say the same to us, except unlike Joshua. We have a full copy of the full revelation of who you are in the the word, in our own heart language. We're not leading four million people to try to inhabit the promised land. And even more than all of that, Holy Spirit, you are God and you live within every one of us who is in fact a Christian to lead us and guide us to do exactly what you reveal in your word and you make clear to do what is absolutely right. So, Lord, may none of us walk out here with any ambiguity tonight. And if there's any questions that need to be answered, let's, you bring those to light and let's answer those. But, God, may we live as people who do not succumb to the relativistic, revolutionary lies of the worldviews of this world that twist and deceive and call wrong right and right wrong. But Lord, may we be transformed by you to not just do what's right, but to do what's right out of a true, growing, transformed love for you. That if it comes to the point where the world drags us to the furnace, that if it comes to the point where the world drags us to the lion's den, that some of them would be depressed like King Darius because of the real genuineness of which you have so transformed our lives to love you and out of loving you and being loved by you to actually really love this world for your good in it. So Jesus, we look to you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.